Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 12 through 14. In everything you do, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, kids. You guys did. I love when you do the sign language thing. Didn't you like them today? Didn't they do a good job today? That is decidedly half-hearted. Okay. Didn't the kids do a great job today with their leading us? And yes. Thank you very much. Much better. Well, um, it is always a challenge for a preacher to preach on words that are familiar to church people. Um, Because, and I I know this too, as a person who used to teach in the uh, religion department over at SNU, I I, I used to teach some of the general ed courses, and, and one of the courses I was asked to teach had to do with this overview of scripture, Biblet. How many of you have ever taken Biblet? Amen. All right. And so my job was to tell and retell those stories to people who already knew what they meant. And sometimes if I ever veered away from that well-trodden path of of what they knew those stories were supposed to mean, sometimes I'd end up in trouble, right? Long before that, they kind of turned me off. And actually, that is the problem. That's the challenge for me today. I don't know if you know this, but uh, we're going to talk about the golden rule today. Words that are very, very familiar to us, which means that these will be the words that you will find hardest to really receive because most of us have already decided what they mean. Does that make some sense? And I may not tell you anything that you don't already know. It may be that I won't tell you anything today that you don't already believe. Uh, But there is that possibility. There is that possibility that, especially when embedded in the Sermon on the Mount, as these words are, it may be that there is an edge to these words that we don't necessarily hear otherwise. I will tell you this. I think we have done great damage to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 by referring to it as the golden rule. Here's what I mean. Christians have this really awful tendency to make Christianity about rules and about behavior. It was said like this in our Sunday school class today. We heard another incredible story. A young man gave his testimony, his faith story, and it was incredible. And he talked about the transition in his life where his faith was concerned, where he is no longer living out of the shoulds and the oughts, and now it's moving into a place where his heart is much more engaged. And Christianity, we Christians, me too, we have this awful tendency to latch onto rules. You know, here's why. Because rules tell us how little we have to do. 
No, no, yeah, 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 but John, this is the golden rule. This is not like a cardboard or aluminum rule. This is not cubic zirconium. This is the golden, golden rule. Yes. And I would say, along with those who would have given us this label, the golden rule, I would say along with them, these are incredibly, incredibly important words. The problem, what we've done, though, is that we have lifted these words out of context and when we assign the word rule to it, we make it one more of those boxes that Christians need to tick off in order to be acceptable, which misses the entire thrust, not just of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. It misses the entire thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. And guess what? It misses the entire thrust of Scripture. And beyond that, it misses the entire thrust of the heartbeat of God. I know there are some really good people in the room, really good people in the room who are checklist people. You don't have to raise your hand, but it's okay to point at people that you know are checklist people. There are checklist people in the room, and they go about faith in these same sorts of ways. But I'm here to tell you, checklist faith eventually is so stale that you're probably right to walk away from it. Because what God wants has less to do with checklists and more to do with gratitude and response. More to do with gratitude and response. Now, you're only going to see this another three times, so just survive it another three weeks, okay? Because you are really an iceberg, and when we make the golden rule a rule, something else that you have to do, right, then we place it right up there. Here's something you got to do. You have got to treat others in a way that you would like to be treated because that's the rule. Can I, can I tell you something else? Perhaps no thought and phrase has done more damage to Christianity than this one. <clears throat> I don't like you, but I love you because I have to love you. Can you hear that? So we have taken, and we've done this with Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 as well, we have taken a word of love and we have made it a word of law. We have taken that's supposed to describe the posture of God and then the resulting posture of God's people and we've made it into something you're supposed to do later today in the realm of actions. But the Sermon on the Mount is going to try to confront you at a level much lower than just what you do or what you leave undone today. There's enough time for us to talk about all of that. But the Sermon on the Mount is trying to go much deeper than that. Much deeper than that all the way to the desires that give rise to those actions. And even more deeply than that. To the story that we are all living out that gives rise to certain desires. That give rise to certain actions and attitudes. Now hear me, hear me. There are wonderful, good people, great people that, that God loves desperately and that God will be anxious to welcome into God's eternity who will never be anything other than checklist Christians. God will not hate you. God will just wish for something more for you. And the something more that God wishes for you takes place at the bottom of this iceberg. Now, Easy for us to say, oh, I know, I know, I cannot stand legalistic Christians. I just can't stand them. 
You can't stand these legalistic Christians. But, but hear this. And I'm going to say this a couple times. It'll end up being sort of a refrain today. The Sermon on the Mount announces that the saving love of God, the saving love of God has been unleashed in the person of Christ. And now God seeks to have a body, you've heard this language, right, the body of Christ, who would then assist and partner with God to set up and move forward and maintain and grow this kingdom of people who would be the tangible and touchable expression of what it can look like when the love of God is continually unleashed. But in order for you and in order for me to actually participate in this kingdom, this kingdom that continues the unleashing of the saving love of God, I have to make sure that I don't live just by the golden rule, but according to the heartbeat of God who loved me first. I tell you, I tell you who get this, who gets this? Kids get this. Kids get this. I've got a little bit of video here. Now, we're going to need sound for this, and it's, it's going to need to be fairly loud so you can hear it. But Lisa asked her students on Wednesday night, tell me what you know about the golden rule. What does it mean? And we're just going to listen to some of their words. You may want to take a few notes. What is it that kids understand to be true about this that we have learned to call the golden rule? Okay, Sam, tell us what the golden rule Whoa, is. Whoa, what happened? I already said the earth the gold. The golden rule is... <laughs> Treat others as you want Wait, to be treated. Wait, hang on one second. Why did it do that? Okay, and how do you do that? Okay. Like, do if like this. Emory, um, if Emory is being to, mean to me and I want her to be nice to me, then I should be nice to her even though she was being mean to me. Very good. Awesome. Do you think that works? I think so. That is really actually a good one. That's a good way? Mm-hmm. So you think it's good to treat people nice even when they're mean? Should I ask you that right now? Tell me what the golden rule means to you. Pretty much treat others the way you want to be treated. Okay. And how do you think to do that? Mm, I usually, like, what do you exactly mean? Like... Do you think that the way you treat other people matters, and how would you treat them? Well, I think it really matters because if somebody's being mean to another person, then that's just not right. Because if somebody's treating somebody mean, like, how should I put this? somebody is being mean to somebody else, that person who's being mean to the person is going to get payback. Hmm. Sort of, kind of. But how would you treat them? Nicely. Because if somebody's being mean to you, you treat them nicely, and then they'll be nice. Okay. So you do think it, it matters even how we treat people that are mean? Yes. Very much, yes. What's the golden rule? The golden rule is treat others the way you want to be treated. And how do you live this out? 
at school I treat others nicely but they don't because a lot of people at my school want me and I still be nice to them. How, how can you do that? I don't know. <laughs> Is there anybody that helps you? Jesus and God. Rolling. Um, the golden rule is to me, I think of it more than just treat others the way you want to be treated. It's a bigger deal than some people think about it. Because some people think it's just a fake thing and no one really believes in it. But it really is true, and if you did, it would change you in a lot of ways. Good. How does it change you? You can start being a kind of person, and yeah, it can change you on the inside. They weren't actually sideways when they said all of that stuff. I'm not sure what happened there. I think our kids have some important insights, though. They understand Matthew 7, 12. And you'll notice I'm going to work pretty hard not to call it the golden rule. I think it's counterproductive. But these kids seem to understand at their core that Matthew 7, 12 is more relational than it is legal. Okay, hear that. More relational than it is legal. In fact, don't just hear that, but know this. You can't get to the destination. You can't get to the destination that God dreams for us if you start believing that this is instruction or just legal. You can't get where God wants you to get. Not too long ago, there was a study done of teenagers the question was asked of teenagers, what does God want? The answer, most often, was this. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay? Then they were asked the central goal. What is the central goal of life? And the answer they got most often was, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. To be happy and feel good about oneself. But this is what they found. They found that this answer, the central goal of life is to be happy and good, feel good about oneself, would actually put limits and parameters on the exercise of their faith. In other words, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself, and to the extent that I can do that and still be good and nice and treat people fairly, I will. But if these two are ever at odds, the central goal will actually trump, in the minds of so many of these adolescents, will actually trump what they feel like God wants from us. In other words, sometimes teenagers, and I don't think it's limited to teenagers, have been demonstrated to prioritize happiness over relational faithfulness. Oh, man, I have seen that before. I have seen it before, and I have heard it before. Can I tell you something? God dreams for you to be faithful before God dreams for you to be happy. 
Yeah, as it turns out, God's greatest dream for you is not your happiness, it is your faithfulness. I once listened, as a Christian man said to me, yeah, it's, we're just not going to make it. Well, this, this marriage is not going to make it. And, and I'm just not happy, he said to me. And sure enough, sure enough, they didn't make it. I had an opportunity to say to him later, though, listen, here's the deal. In your next marriage, your next relationship, hear this, okay? If you have any desire to stay Christian, to be Christian, you need to understand this. What God dreams for you first and foremost is faithfulness. And hopefully, hopefully there will be seasons of happiness in there. I believe that there can be seasons of happiness in there. But if you prioritize happiness, then it will come at the cost of faithfulness. Does, does this make some sense so far? Do you understand that this kingdom launched in the person of Christ? Do you understand that this kingdom is a relational kingdom more than it is a legal kingdom. If you know that, say amen. Can you see why it's a problem then that we take these words so familiar to us, so familiar, and foist upon them this label, the golden rule, because immediately we take what is meant to be relational, intimate. We take what's meant to be relational and intimate and we make it legal. I don't like you, but I have to love you because God tells me I have to love you to get to heaven. Is a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of the words love and heaven. Let's go back. Let's take a look a little bit more at what is happening in these verses. Okay, going back. We have heard these words before, way back when, okay? As the people of God were in their formation process, this is what was said. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But even way back when, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, it was not just a simple to-do list for the people of God. It was going to be the way that the people of God could be organized into a society and into a culture that could then exhibit the heartbeat of God. Make sense? All the law and the prophets, if they don't aim at love, then they are misaimed, as we interpret. In fact, Jesus says this later on in the same book of Matthew. He's asked by a legal expert, what's the greatest commandment? And you remember what he says, right? Well, the greatest commandment is these two. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you haven't ever understood this before, hear it today. In other words, and you see this throughout the Sermon on the Mount too, this kingdom of love is unleashed in the person of Christ. So much so, so much so, that Christ is willing to say to you, if you claim to love God, but then that love for God does not result in love for people, you do not love God. If love for God results simply in your good behavior, <laughs> if the love for God simply results in your good behavior, but not necessarily in the kind of love that can actually have an impact and make a difference in someone else's life, then you really need to brace yourself, buckle up, and read Matthew 25 about sheep and goats because you're on the wrong side of that parable. 
I think sometimes we have been guilty, especially in youth ministry. Now, now you're going to misunderstand me if you're not careful. Hear me. I think at times we have drawn the target around the wrong result. And so we have said to young people often, no, what God wants is purity. And listen to me, God does want purity. But purity ends up being the byproduct of our being in an intimate relationship with God. You can be pure and legalistically addicted to your own sense of purity and not love God or love anybody else. What God wants is you. And the belief throughout Christian history is and has always been. The belief in Christian history is if there can be a good and right and faithful intimate relationship between you and God, one of those byproducts will be purity. Does that make some sense? In everything you do, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. If you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered, what do all of these rules, what do all of these voices throughout Scripture, what are they all trying to say? Well, this is what they're trying to say, that God seeks to have a loving kingdom unleashed, and he has done it specifically in the person of Christ. We kind of think that this verse is the closing bracket to this verse, which is the opening bracket. So all the way back on July 20th, I looked it up, <laughs> we talked about Matthew 5:17, which says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, <laughs> let me try as best I can, not just to tell you, but to embody for you and show you what it is that God seeks in us and then through us, what it is that God wants for us. Do not think that you can just set aside the law and the prophets. You can't set aside the law and the prophets, but I will tell you this. The law and the prophets, if they are not, if they are not aimed such that they result in me and the life I'm going to live, says Jesus, then they are improperly aimed. If your Christianity does not understand that we are to be the embodiment of Christ's love unleashed, and that we are to be this kingdom pushing, pushing, pushing the limits, pushing the boundaries. If your faith does not understand that this is what it means to be Christian, it means to love as God has loved us. If you don't understand that, and for you it is simply behavior modification, then you, I, I love you desperately. You just don't get it. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Uh, in fact, you know what? God does love you. There you go. God does love you, and God will receive you. But if your Christianity does not result in love, then you don't get it. But John, I'm so well-behaved. I, I, John, I'm so incredibly well-behaved. All right, hear this, this is rough, but again, 
I'm, I'm listening to the voice of Christ all the way to Matthew 25. You are going to say, but I'm so well behaved. The question and response to your testimony of good behavior will be, do the people around you know the unreasonable love of God because of you? Do people around you understand that we Christians, because we use this word and that word is Christian, do people around you understand that where there are needs to be met, we meet them? And for the least of these, if you are well behaved and yet people around you die of starvation or isolation, it will not matter to God that you are well behaved. I didn't expect an amen there, but it would have been nice. Because what God wants from me, from you, from us, and from our relationship here is something more than behavior modification. <laughs> God seeks an outbreak of the kingdom whose single greatest core ethic is the love of Christ. So do people around you who know you to be Christian, do they know you to be Christian because you're so well behaved? Because you do not beat your spouse? By the way, please do not beat your spouse. But is that it? This is just one of the words that I think can help us. This is just one. I don't mean to reduce all of this to this one word, but this is one word that I think can help us. There is a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy feels sorry for. Empathy suffers with. Sometimes Christian people are content to feel sympathy when God aches for these people to ache with empathy. Are you a sympathy person or an empathy person? Sympathy's not, I guess, a bad start as long as it's a start. But sympathy better at some point get to empathy. So it's more than just pity. It's solidarity. It's companionship. Brene Brown says it better than I do. Go ahead and play that for us, Jason. So what is empathy? And why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's a, it, very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space 
when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? <laughs> um, Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time, because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Here's the thing, we have to know when we leave Matthew 7:12 in the Sermon on the Mount, and we receive the announcements and the pronouncements from Jesus as we have heard this entire time. And if you haven't been with us the entire time, let me go ahead and sum up the announcements and the pronouncements. They go something like this. God in Christ says, I'm here, things are different now. I'm here, things are different now. There can be a different reality now because God is in Christ. So Christ shows up and says, okay, everything can be different now. I don't care how you have organized the world and organized societies and organized yourselves. I don't care how you have organized all of these cultures. Now it can be organized according to the heartbeat of God and the imprint of God's love. And Christ says here in the Sermon on the Mount, much like Moses did up on Mount Sinai, Christ says, and I will have a people, I will have a people who will know this love because I will have been the one to climb down into that hole with an aching humanity. Hear this. Jesus is saying, I will have been the one to climb down in that hole. I won't be barking at you from the top saying, yeah, do you want a sandwich? It will be Christ. This is why the incarnation is such an important message for us, that Christ would put on flesh and then identify, have this sense of solidarity with us. God comes to us and chooses to love us first, knowing everything there is to know about us. God still chooses to love us, and all God's people said. And so God comes to us first and unlocks our capacity to love by loving us first. And when you understand that God loves you first... When you understand that God loves you, knowing everything that there is to know about you and still loves you, when you know that God loves you selflessly and sacrificially, it does somehow unlock your capacity then to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
It then does allow you to participate in an organization, in an organizing effort that looks dramatically different from the way other systems and cultures organize themselves. We're different. But we're different not because we're told to be different. We're different because we can be different because here, oh man, we're not different just because he tells us to and he says, okay, you do this or else. We're different because we can be different, because we're unlocked and then unleashed by the love that comes to us before we ask. Well, you know that, right? Now, here, here's the misery. Here's the misery of it. There will be people who will live their entire lives, who will attend church faithfully, and they will die not ever knowing how desperately how desperately God loves him or her. But when you know, but when you know that God loves you, when you recognize that God does in fact know you well enough to choose for or against and has chosen for, when you know, when you, can when you are able to read and weave these stories together to get a clear picture of what it means to be loved by God, then in fact, it does allow you to participate in a very different way of being alive that we call Christianity. Another way to describe it, though, is odd and bizarre. People who live out of a sense of gratitude just look different than people who live out of a sense of obligation? Or do you know that? Let me tell you something. They tip differently. It's gonna be sort of a strange way to end, but I wanna to talk to you about tipping. Had lunch this week with a young man who's been in the food service business for years, years, years. Had to move back to the kitchen because being out on the floor serving tables on Sunday was so damaging to his faith that he just had to get loose of it. Now, you've heard me go on and on about this before. Hear it again. Please do not be Christians, overt Christians, and then not tip well. At least tell them you're from a different church if you're going to do that, okay? <laughs> what does any of this have to do with tipping? Well, it, it allows us to draw a connection here. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I hope you are empathic as you sort through how to tip. There used to be, and perhaps still is, a tip card, like a tip sheet, right? You could get out, you could get it out, and you can see this little grid, and it can tell you how little you have to tip. In other words, a little bit like we do with the golden rule, right? 
if Christianity can just be reduced to rules, then I get out my little sheet and I see how little I have to do to be acceptable. And in the process, not only do I cheat others, <laughs> I cheat myself out of this deep understanding of grace. I know, I know, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't easy. And I know that the real life ramifications are difficult. Christ knew it too. And it's the reason he said, this is, a, this is not a judgment here so much as it's an, an observation that to live like this is difficult. And so, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction and there are many who take it. And when he says destruction here, he's not just talking about one person's sense of destruction, one person's eternity. He's talking about the destruction of an entire culture or society. The destruction of an entire neighborhood of creation. What we're talking about here is, in fact, harder in so many different ways. Now, yes, I would say more rewarding, but is, in fact, harder than a lot of the other ways to go about life like someone does that gets out their tip card to determine how little they have to tip. Some people live like that. Jesus' observation is, not many people will be so captured by this love that they will respond in gratitude. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. Because for whatever reason, we seem to naturally gravitate to the tip sheet, to the tip card more than we do to the heart of God that has loved us already, knowing us, the heart of God that's chosen us. There are some people in the room who are not yet able to live out of that sense of gratitude because their hearts have not yet been gripped by the nonsensical love of God. That's why we do this as often as we do it. If you were helping us today, if you would go ahead and come to the front. I talk to you often about how it is that I would like for you to come to the front. Let me do it again. I want you to come grateful as best you can. As best you can, come grateful. But recognize that you are seeing here and taking here this tangible expression of the God who loves first, the God who chooses first. Recognize also that you are taking into your own person these symbols, this body and this blood, this bread and this cup, in the hopes that you can be nourished to find that narrow gate. I have dear friends, and there will not be a day that I don't love these people. I have dear friends 
who do not yet know what it is to live out of a sense of gratitude because God has loved me despite me. I hope at some point in the process of taking bread and cup, they finally are absolutely confronted by this love that does not necessarily make sense when played out against the backdrop of the rest of the world that says there's no such thing as a free lunch. Heavenly Father, bless these elements now. God, don't just bless them, use them. Fuel our imaginations, change our minds, capture our hearts, root our faith where it should be rooted, not in a word of law, but in a word of love. Rooted not in the letters on the page, but in the heart of God that has reached out to us in Christ. So don't just bless these elements, use them. Use them to change us, to capture us. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and exit your pew to the left. And then move forward, and you will move forward toward someone holding a plate of bread. With your hands cupped, walk up to the person holding the plate of bread then that person holding the plate of bread will break off a piece of bread, press it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Here's the good news. You cannot pay for this. Once you receive that which cannot be paid for, I want you then to take it and dip it into the cup held by the person standing right there. Dip it into the cup and when you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Dip it right there into the cup, then take and eat right then and there. And then find a place to pray. Now, some of you will circle right back around and you'll sit down in your pew, and that's fine. But please stay and remain in a posture of prayer. But some of you will want to find a place to pray up here. Because what I've said to you does not yet make cognitive sense. I, I get that. I lived there for a long time. But I will never forget, I will never forget when grace finally made nonsense sort of sense to me. <laughs> when I recognized that God, knowing all that there was to know about me, still chose me. I will never forget that it launched a season in my life in which as I lived in response to that love and grace, I lived a life that was of a higher quality than the life I was trying to live before and I was trying to tick off all the boxes. In other words, grace pushed me to places the law could never get me. Man, I want that for you. This God, this God will be found by you. If you are in need of a prayer for healing, if you will go to one of these side altars, then people who are really good at that prayer for healing will meet you there and anoint you. Physical healing, emotional, relational healing, any kind of healing you'd like to have someone pray with you about, someone will pray with you about those things. Again, these altars here are open for all kinds of prayers. 
especially that prayer today that goes something like this. God, what in the world is he talking about? What does this mean? Just bow your heads with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body willingly and voluntarily broken for you. Every time you eat this bread, remember me. Later on, he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, this blood of the new covenant shed for you. And every time you drink of this cup, remember me. God, as we remember today, unlock our capacity to reflect this love. All across the sanctuary, all who will and all who are who are ready and are aware of their need for Christ, you are welcome at this table. So please stand, move to your left, and receive these elements.
see someone here that you would like to pray with, someone for whom you could be the tangible presence of God, this is a great time for you to come and find your way close to, next to 
some of these folks. Going to offer up a few words of prayer during this pastoral prayer. I'll get out of the way quite a bit so that you can pray your own prayer. After a few moments, then we will close with the Lord's Prayer. Father, we're smart enough, just bright enough, to recognize that in Christ there is a new beginning. And not just for individual minds and hearts and lives, but a new beginning for all of creation. A new possibility. We know also, Lord, that that possibility still exists for us. We confess, God, that there are times when we are intimidated out of this kingdom and out of this understanding. praying, I would encourage you to pray this prayer. God, what is it that intimidates me out of this mindset, intimidates me out of this kingdom? What keeps me from being quite so odd as I have heard today? said, and I believe more deeply than ever before, that faith that is not rooted in gratitude has no staying power. Who has loved you sacrificially? Would you right now pray even a brief prayer of thanksgiving for those who have been the best representation, perhaps not perfect? the best representation of the kind of love that does not keep score, the kind of love that is selfless, selfless and sacrificial, if that sounds like someone that you have known or know currently, pray that prayer of gratitude for that person now. grateful for those who have loved us selflessly. Father, is it possible that they have been in some sense a tangible reminder of how it is that you have loved us? God, as people who suffer burdens, pain, stress, anxiety, Times we confess that we find it difficult to love like this, to love selflessly, in some sense recklessly. 
confess that we need you to capture our hearts and perhaps capture our hearts again and again. God, return us to that place where we are living in response, in grateful response to a love that we could never purchase. invite you now to pray a prayer for healing for those around you you know to be sick, hurt, and perhaps not just physically, but those suffering a relational pain, an emotional, mental pain. Would you pray for those who are in pain around you now? Father, you have shown us how much easier it is to love when it is a reaction and a response as opposed to an obligation. May we stay in close proximity to those people who remind us how chosen and how blessed we are. God, would you kindle in us the possibility to love? The possibility that we would treat others as we would want to be treated. But root that effort, God, in our knowledge and our memory of your love for us. God, help us to be the people who pray this prayer who embody this prayer. And so church, I would invite you now to pray this prayer along with me. And as we pray it, God, may it take up more residence until we finally mean it and embody it. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Like us on Facebook at Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene or follow us on Twitter at OKC First Church.